You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. When it comes to jobs that are compatible with family life, foreign correspondent is not really top of the list. There are, of course, families that travel together for all kinds of jobs. But when you're a foreign correspondent in the Middle East, your workday is unlikely to be dull and uneventful. Sophie McNeil is an investigative reporter for Four Corners and was the ABC's foreign correspondent in the Middle East. She's also the mum of two small boys and the author of We Can't Say We Didn't Know, Dispatches from the Age of Impunity. Hi, Sophie. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, you have always wanted to be a foreign correspondent. Where did it all start? I grew up in Perth, you know, one of the most isolated cities in the world. And sometimes you're not sure if the rest of the planet really exists (laughs) um, when you grow up there. And so you're really quite inquisitive, I think. And I always wanted to travel, explore. But being a reporter and I guess a sense of um, wanting to be a journalist to influence change and make things better was because of reading I did about East Timor as a teenager. I read how Australian reporter John Pilger and John Martinkus and British reporter Max Stahl snuck into East Timor. You know, they filmed the evidence of that horrific occupation there, a third of the population killed. A conflict Australia gave the green light to, you know, we, we allowed Indonesia to invade that country and then, you know, averted our eyes for many years. And I was kind of this outraged teenager in Perth going, why didn't I know about this after I first read about it? And so I thought, you know, I want to be just like these guys. I want to, I want to be a journalist. I want to go places and film evidence of horrible things happening and show the world. And, and so, yeah, I was really inspired by that. And, you know, East Timor had such a good ending when they first became free and were being an independent parliament, they stood up and they thanked those journalists for the work that they did in getting Timor's story out and showing the world that horror, which led to them having their vote for independence. And so that was a really good point to get involved as a journalist because it gave me inspiration. There was a constant kind of starting point of look what you can do. And so for years and years that kept me going and kept me inspired and encouraged, yeah. I want to go back to that um teenage girl because you were passionate about this but I would imagine many teenagers that are passionate about this topic probably still stay close to home you didn't tell us about your first documentary how old were you and how did you make it happen well, <laughs> um, I'm one of four children, so, you know, you have to, a middle child as well, so you have to do things to get attention, don't you? <laughs> um, and yeah, after reading this book and getting really angry about what was happening in Timor, um, I volunteered with these Timorese refugees. We had about 600 that were airlifted to Perth and who lived there for several months, and I used to go and volunteer and teach English to the kids that came and... They went back to Timor after several months and they kept calling me and telling me, you know, like how everything had been destroyed and how there was so much malaria and TB and everyone was getting sick and, you know, the country had been burnt to the ground and now, you know, they were free but they just were, you know, dying of preventable diseases. And this is a place that's an hour's flight from Darwin, you know. It was like, well, you know, we'd we'd kind of help Timor get into that terrible situation. Really, we should be 
doing more to help now um, and I wanted to go there and film all this stuff because after the violence it wasn't in the headlines as much anymore. So I borrowed my high school's video camera, Mr. <laughs> Hill, um, who's actually coming to my book launch in Perth next week. Fabulous. Which is really lovely. Um, good old Mr. Hill lent me the brand new video camera that hadn't been used before and I took it up to Timor on my school holidays and made my first you know, quote unquote documentary because, you know, no one had commissioned it. It was my own project. But it, it you know, it, it was a great exercise and I fell in love with the camera and I fell in love with meeting amazing people doing brave, courageous things. And that, yeah, that started in, in Timor and it's been a bit of a kind of love affair really with just seeing how many inspiring people there are around the world. That's who I always try and kind of hone in on in my reporting, I guess. Well, after that, you were travelling overseas at the age of 18, um, basically working for SBS, reporting. And I can't, I should stop um, comparing you to others because you are very unique and special with what you do. But at 18, you were travelling all over the Middle East reporting for SBS. Most 18 year olds. 19. 19. Oh, <laughs> one year difference. Let's go to 19. I don't think I was much difference between 18 and 19. At any rate, um, I'm not sure what your peers were doing at that point. I know when my cohort were that age, most of us were maybe taking a gap year in Europe and getting drunk in a bar or perhaps they were mulling over what arts subjects they would do at university. Did you find it was quite unusual amongst your friends that you had taken off and you were doing this incredible work overseas or, or did they just go, oh, yeah, that's Sophie. She's been doing that since she was 15. I think I was just lucky that I knew what I wanted to do from a young age. So, yes, I mean, I've always been kind of that weirdo <laughs> um, and, you know, terribly always the one who's never there for a birthday or a wedding or, you know, Christmas or, you know, I am that person. Um, but, I mean, this is the thing with this job. You have to love it. It has to be what you love because it is more than just a job. You have to give it your everything. And I've just kind of yeah, always been like this and I don't know how to be any other way. But, and I, you know, a lot of my friends are a lot older. Um, you know, I'm, I came to Sydney as an 18-year-old, left Perth, kind of ran off and joined the SBS newsroom and, yeah, met amazing reporters who I just, you know, idolised. And there was one particular reporter at the time, Mark Davis, who just won a gold Walkley for his work uncovering um, evidence of, of of terrible abuses in East Timor and Australia's knowledge of some of the some of this and I'd gone up to him at a talk he gave in Perth when I was still at high school and was like I want to be just like you when I grow up and Mark remembered me when I walked into the SBS newsroom and he's like you're that kid from Perth and Mark's still a friend um and I very privileged to have learned a lot from him but um yeah, it's a funny world. It's, it's you know, journalists, um, it's often easier to be friends with other journalists because then you don't disappoint them as much as you do with other <laughs> normal people because you just never know what's going to happen. So my two best girlfriends are both reporters and we have, one lives in Islamabad and one lives in London and we, we all met in Jerusalem and we're all on different time zones. But um, we keep in touch and track of each other and it, yeah, at least they never get annoyed when I cancel last minute because <laughs> they'll do the same thing to me. Yeah. <laughs> and did it change your perspective of life generally? I mean, I know that's possibly a hard thing to reflect on given you've been doing it for so long. But in terms of maybe what you wanted out of life, did it change that at all? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've never done a job for like 
money or this work, you you do it because you just can't imagine doing anything else. Once you've kind of started, once you've been in a situation where you, you feel like, wow, you know, that, that helped make something better or that helped create change, then it is addictive and you always want to be there. And you also, you know, you witnessed like history in the making, you know, like standing on the beaches on the Greek islands in 2015 as thousands and thousands of Syrian refugees were arriving every day. You know, these boats were coming across the horizon and then these masses of people were just walking across Europe, you know, because the Syrian people being the brave, resourceful, determined people they are went, stuff you, we've been bombed by our own government for four years now. No one's helping us. We're going to walk to Europe. They're amazing, the Syrian people. And just witnessing that, I mean, incredible. It's the largest mass movement of people in Europe since the Second World War. And you are witness to, to history and some things are utterly heartbreaking and you, you'll never forget them. Others are amazing and, you know, you can't believe they're real. And that's, that's the thing with this book is that sometimes it's some of the stories in it, it's hard to believe that they're nonfiction because you couldn't have made some of this shit up, you know, like the, the situations people got themselves in, you know, the bravery they exhibited, just ordinary people like you and me who just were in a situation they had to make a choice. What side of history were they going to be on? And a lot of them risked everything to stand up for what was right, for their country, for their people. And I just really think we can take a bit of that courage and, and, and learn from it because I think we often look at the Middle East and think maybe they all look like kind of these helpless victims. But no, they're, they're amazing, brave people. And I think we need a little bit more of that courage and bravery in our lives to try and create the world we want to live in because... There's a lot of work that needs to be done and it, it needs people to do it. When you were talking about that initial spark that set your love for journalism alight with um, people like John Pilger making real change in East Timor, you've worked many, many years covering some really awful conflicts. Um, I remember talking to you at a time when there were children in Syria that were um, starving to death mm. You were reporting all the time on these things, and yet it seems as someone who's not involved in those events, someone's standing here and looking at it, that very little was done in response to that. Mm. I get the sense, and I, I would be guilty of it too, that with the Middle East, there's been so much conflict and so much reporting on it that people almost don't distinguish between events. How does that make you feel, given the history of what inspired you to do this and also how, I guess, journalism has changed a bit with the 24-hour news cycle. Well, that's exactly what I wrestle with in this book, this kind of questioning of what difference did it make? Because we told ourselves after Rwanda, after Bosnia, you know, in the noughties, we said never again. You know, we set up the International Criminal Court and we said crimes against humanity. Nah, you know, we have a system to deal with this. We have rules. You know, we're going to make sure that you can't have a government massacre and cause genocide against their own people. This was a very clear effort and there was a lot of kind of inspiration that, that this is something we could do as a global system. And then you've had the last decade in the Middle East where the rule book has been not just thrown out the window, it's been set on fire and there's been hospitals bombed, civilians targeted. And this isn't just dictators, evil dictators like in Syria who are doing it. You know, it's the Saudi Arabian government in Yemen, a place I reported on. And those bombs that Saudi Arabia has been dropping on Yemen for three years now, and, uh, you know, more, more than 230,000 people have died as a result of that conflict, according to the UN, because of illness and war. I mean, they're all American-made 
British-made weapons. Australia has recently been trying to get their foot in the door and sell weapons to Saudi Arabia. So there's been this horrific period of time where all the rules have been broken. And my book is about the dangers that creates because we look and think it won't affect us. It's horrible. Of course it's horrible. We're all, you know, against what's happening in Syria. We'll all feel sorry for poor people who lived under ISIS in Iraq and, you know, we hear about how evil the Saudi regime is and we think, you know, that's horrible. But the thing is, is that by us averting our eyes and allowing this to happen, because, you know, we didn't go out on the streets. We didn't write to our MPs and say, stop selling weapons to Saudi. Most of us didn't. Most of us just, you know, flipped the newspaper, you know, shrugged our shoulders at the news. It's terrible, but, oh, you know. And, and so by us averting our eyes and allowing mass slaughter to happen, we have created a system now where there are no rules. And this is terrifying because we are facing so many issues right now. As you mentioned, I have two young boys and they love the environment and they're really scared about global warming, you know. And I still remember Quinn, my six-year-old, turning to me at the school strike last September and just, you know, he got really scared and he's like, it's going to be okay, isn't it, mom? Like, we're going to fix this. And I just, you know, lied through my teeth and said, yeah, don't worry, we've got this. Hopefully, we need these rules now, desperately, to face things like the climate emergency, to face rising authoritarian China in our region. I mean, there has been an undermining of human rights in our region. We're looking right now at the largest incarceration of people on the basis of religion in China since the Holocaust, as the Communist Party has locked up one million Muslim citizens just because of their religion. I mean... All is not well right now. And if you're a mother or a father, that's terrifying because we all know how important rules are. I mean, imagine, <laughs> trying to, imagine trying to, you know, run a, a family or parent young children without rules. And it's at that most basic level that has been so undermined. And it's been helped by this devaluing of truth. You know, I've spent my whole life fighting and advocating for to tell the truth you know to show you the evidence and our democracy can't work and won't work well if i show you it all it's all there like syria is the most reported war on in history but no one does anything you know and and this is it we can't keep thinking that it's only just gonna um, affect those people over there because it won't and and this global kind of um, undermining of the rules the lack of deterrence for people to uphold human rights the the failure to enforce international law and things like that and for people to just carry out war crimes without punishment that trickles down to us and it, and it's really scary and so my book is a call to arms for us all to recognize this and to and to stand up and and learn from some of these courageous people and make self-sacrifice in our own lives because you know we're all frantically recycling but that's not enough and it doesn't matter if you're passionate about human rights the environment indigenous rights children's education you know There is so much work that needs to be done and it has to be done by you. Each and every one of us has to take some responsibility, make a sacrifice. And it's something we're lucky enough in this country, a lot of us haven't had to do. But in a place like the Middle East, you'll meet the most ordinary person who has made a huge self-sacrifice for their country, for their people, you know, for, for freedom, for democracy, you know, just to live for their children. You meet so many incredible parents across the Middle East who have risked or lost everything just to try and make a better life for their children. And I just think we need to take some of that courage on board. I always get annoyed when people ask me about hope and say, oh, you know, do you have hope? And I'm like, no, 
like stuff hope I want courage you know I think that's what we need in today's world not hope it's interesting that word courage because when you were talking about that and talking about um, how these governments and dictators act with impunity what I feel like trickles down from that for the rest of us is apathy Mm. which is hopefully something like courage is something that we can take on board because Mm. courage uh, incites action and and that's what people find hard, exactly. you know, because they look at it and they think, well, what what can I do? What can I do? Will it make a difference? The last time I remember any big protests was about the invasion of Iraq mm. when it came to international affairs. I've seen lots of protests about climate change and trying to have action on that. But most people, they look to the top and they see that trickle down and they think... If they're not doing anything, what difference can I make? I mean, this is it. You know, we 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 have to do it ourselves because I think our leaders have failed us. You know, and you look at the example of Greta Thunberg and what she's managed to do. One teenage girl. You know, I mean, if she can do it, we all can. We can all lead in our communities and and take a stance on issues that we care about. But this is the problem. Apathy gives permission for our leaders to to just do nothing. Well, do nothing, but also. It, it, it gives them permission to carry out these policies. Like if you're not doing anything to actively say you don't want that, then that, that's permission, you know, and we've proved indifferent to slaughter over the last 10 years by what's happened in the world. And again, you, you know, you think, well, I didn't do it. You know, I wasn't me. And, you know, this is not about trying to make you feel guilty, but it's just like we have to act in small ways. We can all make a difference. And I think, Sometimes we look at the world and we think we feel helpless and we feel powerless. But if we let that overwhelm us, they win. You know, this age of impunity will continue and the world will get further and further away, I think, from the planet we want it to be. And I think that it's just on all of us to, to try and take a step and, can you know, can start small. But um, we need leaders right now and leaders come in all forms, you know, lead in your workplace, lead in your mother's group lead in your community lead at your kids school you know just just say that you know this is not right and I want to make a difference you know we can all I think we can there's all different kinds of leaders and sometimes we get confused or you know think that you have to <laughs> be Being that parliament yeah you know be on that level but no I mean some people can make amazing changes within their own communities and then that you know that that can create kind of a domino effect and you start getting small successes and then work up to bigger things. So that's what I'm hoping people will do as a result of reading this book. And do you think, um, we were talking about the 24-hour news cycle and, of course, there's fake news and there's so many voices within the mediascape at the moment. Do you think some of the reason why people aren't getting involved is the politicisation of these things? You know, like you might, you would say, I mean, back in the day when I was working at community radio and we would report on what was happening to children in the Gaza Strip and everyone would be like, oh, yeah, just a lefty community mm. radio people. And it's like, well, no, there's something happening here. Mm. doesn't matter what you believe politically children are dying and it's a problem. It's been a problem for many years. Is the number of voices we have in the media now part of uh, the challenge for you to cut through and have an impact with the truth that you're seeing? I think it's really hard. I think there's so much noise, you know, and I, I hate it. Like I, I tune tune out. I just get so sick of just people kind of discussing things. You know, I'm really interested in all my reporting. I'm always like, I want to say something that no one else is saying. Like the last thing I want to do is just add to this bloody noise. It just is overwhelming. So I think that is part of it. And I think it's hard for people to find 
sources they rely on. So I, you know, always encourage them to, to discriminate and to choose really carefully where they get the information from. I mean, for example, like Four Corners, we fact check our stories three times. Every single line in our stories is fact checked three times by someone else, not you who wrote it. Another person comes in and will like sit there and say to you, where's that from? Where's that from? Show me where that, like you have to prove it within your own team. And it's, and it's a great exercise. And so when I look at some, you know, the news these days, I'm like, who the hell? Like they don't do any fact checking. You know, it's terrifying. Um, and this book is also fact check. Um, but um, it is part of the problem, I think. But one thing that is also scary is how the truth has just become something that can be disputed. You know, like I still remember when one of President Trump's advisors said, oh, you know, we have like an alternative truth or something. It's like, hang <laughs> on, there, there, is, there, there are still facts. You know, there is evidence, there are rights and wrongs, and there are truths and untruths. Like this is not something you can mess with. And so this is something I'm very passionate about. And I, I see it increasingly just even within Australia, this idea that you can kind of argue with facts, you can argue with science, you can, you know, um, refuse to answer questions again, and I just, I just, I kind of get flabbergasted that this is where we've come to, and I, yeah, I, I, we can't accept it. You know, we have to stand up and fight for the truth because truth matters, evidence matters. Now, going back to your family and how you manage this kind of career, you have a husband, is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Um, and so, how when you met? I don't know where you met because. I'm presuming, At a party. <laughs> I, I presume yeah. you, you haven't known him since before your um, first documentary, although uncommissioned in East Timor. Um, so he would have come into your life at a time and known this was your passion and known this was your, your life's work in a way. And on this show, we often talk about, you know, the conversations you have before you tie the knot and about children, about how you want to raise them. And I've never met anyone who's actually had that conversation. Oh, no, totally. Like when I met... <laughs> Ruben, my beautiful husband, like I was on holiday from Beirut. I was living being a journalist and I went back to WA and met him at a barbecue as a friend of my sister's. And within two weeks, I was like, yeah, you can, you know, look after my babies. Because <laughs> 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 I'm going to Iraq now <laughs> and I really like to keep you. <laughs> You're the one. Um, and that was our starting point. Um, I was 23 and he was 26. And yeah, it worked out. <laughs> you planted the seed early. Well, you know, I was always very upfront, you know. Um, Ruben, he's a perfect match for a journalist. He's When I met him, he was a winemaker in Margaret River. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I've dragged him out of that beautiful, the most beautiful spot in the world, I reckon. And now he makes beer. He's a craft brewer, <laughs> um, which you can do in the city, which is easier than making wine. But it's a good match for a journalist. And, you know, I guess, yeah, it is hard for women to have these conversations. But I was always very upfront. Like, I'm really passionate about my career. This is what I do. You know, it's more than just a job. It's what I believe in. It's what I want to change about the world. And so it was, yeah, it was always our agreement that, that he would be the stay-at-home dad. And I'm so lucky to have a supportive partner and um, he actually has just got his kind of first big proper job since um, our nine-year-old kind of was born like eight years ago when I went off maternity leave when Nat, our eldest, was one and I went back to work and then Ruben's really taken the care of things since then and yeah, he just got his first proper like back to work job like you know the eldest is nine the youngest is six and he can finally have a full-time job again because for so many years he he couldn't and when I was in the middle middle east 
he couldn't work in Jerusalem. He couldn't get the right visa. And to be honest, I, I was, you know, I worked every night because of the time difference. I used to travel at the drop of a hat. I, he couldn't have worked. So for three years, you know, he looked after the kids full time. And there's this famous example of when our friends came to stay and they were like, do you guys have a clothes dryer? And I was like, oh, no. And at the same time, Ruben's like, yeah, it's in the laundry. <laughs> And he's like, you didn't even know there was a clothes dryer. And then we just moved house and we had to sell our washing machine. And I was like, oh, all the ones for sale on Gumtree, they're all front loaders. We've never had a front loader. And he's like, we had a front loader in Jerusalem. You never went into the laundry. So, you know, bless him. He's, um, he's, I couldn't have done anything without him. Yeah. What was it like being pregnant through the, that process? Because you you're kind of a little bit hostage to your own body in the sense of the emotions and the hormones that you can get. And you've always worked in areas that are highly emotional, I would think, Mm. with everything that's going on. What was it like to be in that state where you have so little control over what's happening? Yeah, I mean, I I was um, in Gaza when I was pregnant and um, I went to Syria when I was pregnant, not during the war, before the war. And, um, you know, I still remember in 2013 it was only you know, about a, a year after Syrian refugees began arriving in Jordan and I went to um, record a radio documentary in the camps there. I was working for Triple J Hack at the time. And, yeah, I was six months pregnant and, you know, I mean, it's you will get a bit worried, like, oh, you know, am I going to, you know, is this poor, poor baby going to be okay because I'm kind of, you know, trudging around this refugee camp and it was snowing and it was freezing and, but, I mean, it's... Like you look at women in the Middle East and what they endure and how strong they are. So, you know, it's good. It makes you quite tough and it makes you not complain. So, (laughs) I mean, that's one way of, you know, trying to um, deal with it. But yeah, I was really lucky. I I never got really sick during my pregnancy. So I know some friends who have and they, you know, it's it's horrific. So I I was just lucky, really. Morning sickness sucks. Yeah, yeah. Um, What about that? I mean, mums will often say that... After they've had children, it increases their sensitivity to the world. Mm. You were talking about your sons and their fear about climate change and what you think about what kind of world they're giving, they're going to inherit. Mm. But at the same time, you've got your own children that you obviously love and care for. And at the same time, you're seeing all this darkness in the world. How do you work through that, I guess, just as a human being? Um, I mean, they just wanting to make the world better for them, you know, just just get makes me jump out of bed every morning. Um, I mean, I've always, you know, cared about the world and wanted to make a difference. But, you know, some people said, like, do you not want to travel now since you have kids or you don't want to go anywhere dangerous now since you have kids? But if anything, like, no, now I've got these two little people to save the world for. I mean, if anything, I think having kids should make you, yeah, become more engaged and, and want to yeah, really make a difference. So unfortunately, that does mean working quite a lot for me. But, you know, I also, I I love to see their reactions to my work. You know, they like, they get really proud and it's really cute, you know, they, and I always tell them how I'm, you know, I'm just trying to help those kids and that they relate to that, you know, and they would do cute little things like when I'm in the Middle East and I'd they knew that these kids in Yemen were starving and I still remember Nat like put an apple in an envelope and wrote like to the kids, you know, and Aww. I was just was like, take this with you, mum, you know, or gave me books for when he knew I was going to Zatu refugee camp to see Syrian refugee kids. And yeah, I mean, the, I think the number one thing you can install in your kids is empathy. 
for them to meet people who are different and to see how they're just like them, whether they look different, sound different, eat different things, have a different religion. You know, like my boys have met so many amazing, wonderful different people over the years and they don't kind of bat an eyelid at anyone who lives differently. I think that's a really important thing to install in children. And courage, you know, that's the thing I tell them. I want you to be brave. I want you to be courageous, you know, stand up for things. And so, yeah, I think that's that's one of the most important lessons I'm I'm hoping that they will take away. But yeah, it's 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 hard. <laughs> well, you've now moved back to Perth. So Fremantle. Fremantle. <laughs> yes. And it's almost like you've you've traveled the world, you're still traveling the world, but you're back closer to family and yeah, friends. First I would time imagine. in seventeen years. Just moved back three weeks ago. Yeah. How's that feel? It's amazing because, um, you know, Perth is a, a wonderful place to live. Fremantle is is a lovely community and, and life's really easy there, like after having lived in some more difficult places around the world, but also in Sydney, you know, I get quite claustrophobic in big cities having come from WA and... Um, you know, that is a place where really, you you know, people are so lucky, you know, people are really privileged. It's, it's a wonderful lifestyle. And yeah, it's lovely to be around my family because I had these two lovely boys and then took them overseas. And part of the reason we came back to Australia is just for the grandparents, because one thing the Middle East will teach you, you know, you kind of, you leave Perth, you go all the way around the world, you spend all this time in the Middle East to just learn that nothing matters in life except love and family. Like, that's what you learn from the Arabs, from, you know, the Middle East, from, from seeing horrible things. Nothing else matters at the end of the day. So, you know, I wanted my boys to spend more time with their grandparents and, and for me to spend more time with my parents as well because, um, yeah, that, that's really one thing that I learned in the Middle East was how important family is. It's such a beautiful place to end the conversation. Sophie, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. (laughs) That's Sophie McNeil. Her book is called We Can't Say We Didn't Know, Dispatches from an Age of Impunity. And I'll put links in the notes of this episode for where you can get a copy. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, Email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.